1919, eight members of the Chicago White Sox conspired with mobsters and gamblers to purposefully lose the World Series. Months after they lost, the scandal came out and rocked the nation. Those eight players earned a lifetime ban from Major League Baseball and would come to be known as the Black Sox. Welcome to Fixing the Game. I'm your host, Keir Hitchens. One of those eight Black Sox was the illiterate son of a South Carolina sharecropper, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Baseball fans and historians love to tell the story of Joe Jackson as a martyr who represents the corrupting influence of money. In Field of Dreams, Ray recounts how his father always told him that Shoeless Joe was wrongly convicted, and Joe's love for the game was as pure as anyone else's. The Black Sox scandal and Joe Jackson's subsequent martyrdom supposedly motivate Ray to start his entire quest, so much so that the novel Field of Dreams is based on is called Shoeless Joe. Throughout the course of the plot, though, neither Ray nor his story's authors unpack what really happened to those 1919 White Sox. By leaving that story untold, they exonerate two of the tale's true villains, Kennesaw Mountain Landis and Charles Comiskey, and avoid the real root of the Black Sox scandal, a labor dispute. Our story starts in Chicago in the early 20th century. Between 1900 and 1915, America as a whole was reckoning with the later stages of the Industrial Revolution. Chicago was home to a multitude of booming industries, like meatpacking plants and railroads. Those plants had horrible working conditions and non-existent workers' rights, scenes of which Upton Sinclair brought to the nation's attention in his 1906 novel, The Jungle. Exploitation of labor was everywhere, and the American government was struggling to regulate these new industries. Amidst the hustle and bustle of the city was a federal judge, appointed by Theodore Roosevelt, who was just about to complete a decade of service in the courts. Like the president who appointed him, Kennesaw Mountain Landis occupied the progressive left wing of the Republican Party, and built his reputation by cracking down on big business. In 1907, Landis handed down a then-record $29 million judgment against the Standard Oil Company for various anti-competitive practices which gained him some notoriety as a trust-busting judge. From all accounts, Landis was at the forefront of reining in these unregulated industries. That is, until the industry in question was baseball. In 1913, an up-and-coming baseball league, the Federal League, sought to challenge Major League Baseball's monopoly on the sport. The next year, the MLB owners started to see the Federal League as a real threat and bought up most of the league's teams. Those Federal League team owners who refused to sell to the MLB saw this as the MLB solidifying its already dominant share of the market. For that reason, they sued Major League Baseball in 1915 for violating one of the main regulations to prevent monopolies, the Sherman Antitrust Act. After some weeks, their case landed in the courtroom of Kennesaw Mountain Landis. As Nathaniel Groh detailed in his book Baseball on Trial, With its Chicago-based leadership, the Federal League almost certainly would have been aware that a high-profile individual like Landis was a baseball fan. In fact, the judge was known to frequently attend games throughout his years on the bench and had developed a reputation for being a particularly rowdy Chicago Cubs booster during the team's championship years from 1906 to 1910. 
Encouraged by Landis's love for baseball and his record as a trustbuster, the Federal League's management was extremely hopeful for their chances to win the case. They could not have been more wrong. Instead of ruling on the case, Landis encouraged the two leagues to settle out of court and waited for more than a year for them to do so. After Landis stalled for months, the two leagues finally settled out of court in 1916. The MLB owners were allowed to buy out all eight Federal League teams and subsume them into their organizations, with the exception of Landis's Chicago Cubs. Landis's beloved Cubs were bought by the owner of Chicago's Federal League team, the Whales, and moved into Wrigley Field. In 1922, the Supreme Court ruled that the MLB was not subject to antitrust laws, granting them an exemption, and setting the MLB's monopoly into stone. Landis's non-decision and failure to recognize the MLB's monopoly on the industry of baseball laid the groundwork for that ruling. Just three years after Landis's non-decision, the 1919 MLB season began. One of the most dominant teams of all time, the Chicago White Sox, were on the path to the World Series. The Sox were led by their slugger and star outfielder, Shoeless Joe Jackson, who batted 351 that season with 181 hits and only 10 strikeouts. On the defensive side, the Sox had some incredible talent as well. Four of their five starting pitchers had an earned run average under three. Their 35-year-old ace pitcher, Eddie Seacott, racked up 29 of the team's 88 wins that season. Needless to say, the White Sox won the American League pennant easily, steamrolling their way into the World Series to face the uninspired Cincinnati Reds. As Elliot Asanoff chronicled an eight-man out, the White Sox were terribly underpaid despite their dominance. The team's owner, Charles Comiskey, was a shrewd businessman, and though he was beloved by the public, to his employees he was a cheap, stingy tyrant. At the beginning of that 1919 season, Comiskey promised his players a bonus if they won the pennant that year. Upon clinching the pennant, the players celebrated their win with a case of champagne they found waiting for them in the locker room. Later, when they asked about their bonus, Comiskey told them the champagne was the bonus. Even the team's two main stars, Joe Jackson and Eddie Seacott, were treated very poorly. In addition to his promise to the team, Comiskey promised Eddie Seacott that he would earn a significant bonus should he win 30 games that year, a ridiculous number for a pitcher in his 14th season. After Seacott earned his 29th win, Comiskey benched him for the rest of the season, blocking him from his 30th win and never paid him his bonus. Shoeless Joe Jackson received much the same treatment. Comiskey never paid Jackson more than $6,000 for a season's worth of work, while players with half his talent made twice as much on other teams. Due to the MLB's reserve clause, which we will discuss further in the next episode, Jackson and every other player had the option of playing for his current team or not playing in the MLB at all. This meant that players had no real negotiating power. They could take their contract or leave Major League Baseball. So when Chick Gandil offered his teammates, including Jackson and Seacott, a huge payout from the mob to purposefully lose the World Series, it only made sense that some of them said yes. After the 1919 White Sox purposefully lost the World Series and their plot was uncovered, the country was in turmoil. The league's executives decided that they needed a fearless leader to regain control. They appointed one federal court judge, our friend Kennesaw Mountain Landis, as Major League Baseball's first ever commissioner. 
In response to the scandal, Landis never even considered Charles Comiskey's exploitative labor practices or the fact that Major League Baseball stifled competition in their labor market. Instead, Landis banned from baseball the true victims of the scandal. All eight players stuck between the owners and the mob. Why did Landis make such a glaring exception to his supposedly progressive anti-monopoly values for Major League Baseball? And why did the authors of Field of Dreams choose to leave out such an integral part of Shoeless Joe's story? To answer these key questions, we have to dig deeper into American history and the idea of the noble lie. In his seminal work, The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois discussed the structures of racism that demanded black people abandon their voice, their opinions, and their aspirations for the ruling white class to accept them into American culture. Du Bois said that for any ambitious Southern black man, his real thoughts, his real aspirations must be guarded in whispers. He must not criticize. He must not complain. With this sacrifice, there is an economic opening and perhaps peace and some prosperity. Today, this phenomenon is alive and well. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi calls it assimilationist racism, the racist idea that in order for someone to deserve the same rights as everyone else, they must abandon their own culture and adopt that of society's dominant culture. In doing so, they must push down their aspirations, deceiving themselves and those around them. Du Bois addresses this assimilationism directly in his discussion of the ambitious Southern black man, but he also says, nor is this situation peculiar to the Southern United States. Instead, he asks, is it not rather the only method by which the undeveloped races have gained the right to share modern culture? The price of culture is a lie. In other words, for a black person to earn their place in American society, they have to accept the lie that they are lesser than white people. The concept of culture revolving around a lie has existed since long before W.E.B. Du Bois. In fact, the idea was introduced well before modern culture to which Du Bois refers. Around 375 BCE, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato authored Republic, in which he discussed the concept of justice and imagined a utopian city-state called Callipolis. Plato recognized that running his utopia would take a lot of hard work and necessitate loyal tradespeople, soldiers, and other workers to maintain it. Conveniently, Plato believed that every person was born to perform a certain role. He wrote that sons born with an infusion of brass or iron, which is to say someone better cut out to work with their hands than with their mind, would be given the status due to his nature and thrust him out among the artisans or the farmers, even if he was born to a high-status family. Plato wanted philosophy to be Callipolis's guiding principle, but also insisted that for society to function, only the philosopher king should have the knowledge gained from philosophy. For the city to run smoothly, the workers and city guards would need intense devotion and love for Callipolis, but not necessarily knowledge. So, Plato built the society's framework on a set of myths, a noble lie, which would ensure the lower classes remained devoted to their subservient roles. Plato says that every resident of Callipolis was born from the selfsame mother, while simultaneously believing that some people were born with a right to power and some people were not. So why tell this lie in the first place? because the city's power structure depended on it. As we discussed in episode one, 
America's own power structure relies on a similar set of noble lies or myths, like Jefferson's yeoman farmer. At the center of those myths is one that we all know, the American dream. Much like Plato's idea of finding one's calling in Callipolis, the American dream is that you can go as far as your hard work and character will take you. Raj Chetty, an economist and professor at Harvard University, distilled that idea into a measurable definition of the American dream. The probability that a child born to parents in the bottom fifth of the income distribution makes the leap all the way to the top fifth of the income distribution. In a December 2016 study with the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Chetty found that in the United States, children born to parents in the bottom fifth of the income distribution have a 7.5% chance of reaching the top fifth. In comparison to other wealthy countries, this percentage is one of the worst in the world. As Chetty puts it, your chances of achieving the American dream are almost two times higher if you're growing up in Canada relative to the United States. This connects with our discussion of farming. Even while politicians like Thomas Jefferson and Ronald Reagan promoted the idea of the American dream, they passed policies that privileged the wealthy over the working class. This reality is even more evident for black people, indigenous people, and others who have been the victims of the American settler colonial project since the very beginning. In a 2018 study, Chetty and three colleagues examined wealth inequality in relation to race. While black children accounted for about 35% of all children raised in the bottom 1% of the income distribution, they made up less than 1% of the children at the very top. At the same time, they found that black people have the lowest rates of social mobility, which further entrenches wealth inequality along racial lines. After the Civil War, as Du Bois covered in The Souls of Black Folk, labor has been controlled and managed by the color line, nowhere more conspicuously than in Major League Baseball. This brings us back to the episode's driving question. Why did Landis believe baseball should be exempt from labor laws? And why was that part of the story left out of Field of Dreams? Like Callipolis and the United States, baseball relies on its own canon of myths to maintain its structure of power. In the 1915 case between Major League Baseball and the Federal League, when that power structure was challenged, Kennesaw Mountain Landis stated one of the myths outright. Speaking to representatives of the two leagues, Judge Landis stated, I might as well be frank with you gentlemen about this. As the result of 30 years' observation, I was somewhat shocked to hear you call baseball labor. Landis, to use the common phrase, said the quiet part out loud. He did not believe that baseball was labor. To Landis and many others, the game existed separate from industry, separate from money, separate from greed, and separate from exploitation. It was the nation's pastime, a break from the woes of the world. That never stopped team owners like Comiskey from exploiting the labor of their players, though. For years, players like Shoeless Joe were told to play for the love of the game, not for money while Charles Comiskey and the other owners profited. In the words of Elliot Asanoff, always the owners claimed for the good of baseball. Their greatest fear was that the American fan might suspect there was something crooked about the national pastime. Who then would pay good money to see a game? Baseball's noble lie is that it serves a higher purpose and is therefore separate from the systems of power, money, and greed that plague the rest of society. As Asanoff points out, that lie exists so the owners continue to profit. The lie gets told because baseball does exist within the bounds of American society and reflects our society's racist, classist, and patriarchal structure. 
Field of Dreams deals directly with Kennesaw Mountain Landis's legacy, but it never mentions his name. Instead, we get a shadow of Landis. As we know, the striking absence of black or female baseball players is due in large part to Landis's work to keep the field segregated. In addition, Field of Dreams offers the Black Sox a second chance to play, but never addresses how Landis laid the groundwork for the scandal in 1915. Screenwriter and director Phil Alden Robinson avoided examining the roots of the Black Sox scandal. Instead, he makes Ray add to the myth that baseball is separate from the rest of society. Ray assumes that Shoeless Joe and the others just need a second chance to play for the love of the game, never offering any critique of the labor dispute or the economy that forced them to monetize themselves and their sport in the first place. For W.P. Kinsella or Phil Alden Robinson to examine the roots of the Black Sox scandal would mean contradicting baseball's noble lie. Placing Ray in the context of a labor dispute would destroy the fantasy of an immaculate, uncorrupted game that generations of white men work so hard to build. The fundamental irony here is that Ray, his family, and his field cannot be separate from the rest of society. They have farm loans to pay off. For that reason, Ray becomes the new owner of the Black Sox, promoting his field as a refuge from society's woes like money, power, oppression, and exploitation. Ray goes from simple farmer to the owner of an iconic baseball field, seeming to exemplify the American dream. At the same time, though, Ray's character represents the reality of that American dream, a fictional, almost unattainable myth that reinforces our country's systems of power and privileging white male success over everything else. Thank you for listening to Fixing the Game. Next time, we'll explore how baseball's noble lie defined the game in the 70s, 80s, and today. Before we go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell three friends about it or share it on social media. Thanks so much. See you next time.